Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. You'd think it would go without saying that women's rights are human rights. But actually, it was only a couple of decades ago that feminist activists had to work hard to convince the mainstream human rights community that this was the case. Niav Riley has documented this struggle in her book, Women's Human Rights, which came out with Polity Press in 2009. And she's done much more. She's given us a framework for understanding a movement that rests on notions of women's shared concerns across the globe, but which also recognizes their differences. She's given us a terrific overview of how the movement for women's human rights has tackled issues like the situation of women during armed conflict, violence against women in the so-called private sphere, reproductive rights, and the impact of economic development on women. And she tackles the thorny intersection of women's rights and multiculturalism. I learned a lot from reading Riley's book, and I think you'll enjoy our interview. Hello, Niav. Hi. It's great to have you here. Um, we have today Niav Riley, author of Women's Human Rights with Polity Press from 2009. And I'm very happy to have her on the show. Um, let me start out just by asking you, Niav, a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little about your background, how you got into this line of work. Sure. Well, I... Um grew up in Ireland. I was uh, born and raised in the, in, in the Dublin area in Ireland and uh, left for the United States um, in 1984 to, and after a short period then pursued uh, graduate studies in economics at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and then on to Rutgers, initially studying economics, international political economy, uh, but switched over to political theory to study feminist political theory uh, at Rutgers with a, a wonderful a wonderful department there with some uh, with Sue Carl and Linda Zarilli. And at that time, as a graduate student, I met Charlotte Bunch, who had just uh, had, had come to Rutgers rather recently as the Lower New Jersey chair and went on then to establish in the very early days a project on uh, global women's leadership. And uh, I began to work with Charlotte at that point as a part-time uh, assistant as a graduate student. And over those years then, the, from a very small uh, little project, uh, it grew the, the, the Center for Women's Global Leadership. So while I was working towards my PhD studies and you know, in, in, in feminist theory, uh, I was also working at, in, in what turned out to be an extremely uh, exciting project, uh, which was really bringing a global perspective to a very well-established women's studies and uh, women's research um, sort of community within Rutgers. So, 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 so that's how I became drawn into the uh, women's rights as human rights uh, theme, which, which became a focal theme uh, for the establishment of the Center for Women's Global Leadership in the, in the early 1990s. 
Tell us a little bit about the Center for Women's Global Leadership, because that is such an important institution. Yeah, well, as I, you know, at the time, it was, it was, it was very small. It was, it was a handful, it was Charlotte Bunch and, and really a handful of graduate students at the very beginning. And, uh, and, and as I said, the idea was to, to, to bring a global perspective to women's studies. Now, Charlotte Bunch had had a long sort of uh, history working in the international women's movement through the UN Decade for Women, 1975 to 1985, and so, so had many um, relationships and contacts with women's networks and organizations internationally. And we always knew that this was going to be a part of what the new center would do. And there wasn't a name for the center at the time. It was a very long name. I can't remember it now. It was something like the Center for Global Issues and Women's Leadership. And there was a lot of discussion about what the name of the center should be. But also at that time in the early 90s, uh, with, the, with the end of, of the Cold War, with the you know, end of apartheid in South Africa and so on, there was, it was a very exciting moment of new possibilities as to what kind of framework and discourse might um, inform global politics in a post-Cold War world. And there was a, there, there was a sort of a mini renaissance around uh, human rights that began to emerge. So human rights, there was talk of a, of, of, a, of, of a world conference on human rights. The last one had been 25 years ago in Tehran. There hadn't been a world conference on human rights throughout you know, most of the Cold War period, mainly because of the kind of um, disagreements and the political impasse around what human rights were and this uh, very classic division between focusing on civil and political rights in the, in, in, in the so-called West and developed world and then the focus on economic um, and cultural rights that was really pushed by the then uh, communist bloc countries. So there was a standoff in terms of what human rights were about. And this, this, the, the end of the Cold War created the conditions where new conversations were happening about human rights. And at the same time, the decade on women, the, the UN decade uh, for women, had created uh, conditions of um, really a proliferation of women's organizations and networks internationally that were very oriented towards the global stage. And the issue of violence against women had begun to emerge through that as a clear common issue, even though it affected different women differently in different parts of the world. It was one of the, it was, it was one of the issues that kept recurring. So whether you were talking about the refuge movement in North America or you were dealing with female infanticide in, in Asia or dowry-related death, in Africa or honor killing in Brazil, it seemed that the, the common theme was that there was a, a profound issue around different forms of gender-based violence against women that women could have common cause in. And it also seemed that this, this framework of human rights, well, why had anybody, why, why were women's rights not central to human rights? At that time, the phrase women's human rights didn't exist in, in the lexicon there was people didn't talk about women's human rights they talked about women's rights which meant very something very narrow and specific usually within kind of uh, western developed uh, countries and human rights which meant something very serious and um with with, with great gravitas and of, of international importance but that concept at that time didn't embrace women's rights. So uh, various, various organizations and groups that, 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 that the Global Center was connected with began to meet and discuss. And um, you know, how could we bring uh, issues of, of uh, women's human rights to the center of the mainstream human rights agenda where they had been, uh, not been dealt with and had been excluded to date? So this, this, this whole focus then became... Uh, really the, 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 the centerpiece around which the Center for Women's Global Leadership emerged 
and developed all of its programming. Um, the, the, the idea of saying, well, let's bring women's human rights issues, and particularly the issue of violence against women, to this international human rights conference. So, and, 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 and it was very much a multi-level campaign, which obviously I cover in the book at, at, at length. But the idea was that there would be broad-based ways that could uh, allow women's organizations, groups and activists to engage with the campaign um, um, on, a, on, on, on a community and grassroots level, as well as other mechanisms such as popular tribunals, as well as ways of, of, of lobbying uh, for specific language change at the highest levels within the UN. So the Global Campaign for Women's Human Rights was all about linking um, women's groups, networks, advocates across regions, across sectors, across concerns. But there's no doubt that the issue of violence against women was a rallying and, um, you know, a, a kind of a unifying theme uh, in the sense that there was common cause. And then the, the, the idea was to get these issues on the human rights agenda. And uh, there was a massive petition campaign. There were various uh, popular tribunals and so on. But that work then really became the, the foundation for the Center for Women's Global Leadership's continuing engagement from there on in the integration of gender and feminist perspectives in, across all sorts of UN policy areas. Um, and and uh, the, the kind of was the methodology and the way that the center worked was very significant. But from my perspective, it was hugely, it was hugely um, influential in terms of my understanding of what the feminist project was about. It, 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 it was a, a kind of a feminist praxis that, by, by, that was very um, self-consciously um, um, paid attention to, to in, in inclusivity across all kinds of divides and, and, and boundaries, regional, international for sure, but also across um, 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 ethnicity, class, sexual orientation, ability and so on, disability and so on, that there was a very active... Um, praxis around uh, inclusivity in the in in the meetings, in the events, in the training programs, in the leadership institutes, all of which fed in to very concrete campaigning work. Uh, in the years that I was there, that concrete campaigning work spanned the you know the 1993 World Conference on Human Rights, but then went on. To, there was you 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 may be familiar with the um, whole series of UN conferences that took place in the 1990s, which was part of. Uh, this this um, renaissance in human rights thinking, this idea of how now are we going to approach uh, he heading into the new millennium and so on, what are going to be the frameworks for approaching global policy issues. So you had the predating the, the World Conference on Human Rights in 1993 had been the Rio Summit on the, on the environment. You then had the 1993 Conference on Human Rights. That was quickly followed uh, by the uh, World Summit on Social Development, the International Conference of Population and Development, uh, Habitat was another conference that took place in 2005, on to the Durban um, Conference Against Racism and Forms of, of, of Intolerance and Xenophobia. So there was a whole series of, uh, really the 1990s was a decade of major UN conferences that were really about reinventing and rethinking um, how, we, how we view the world, how we view social justice, uh, how we view human rights, how we deal with emerging crises, whether it's around conflict, uh, environmental destruction. But the, the, one of the core themes from the kind of feminist perspective was uh, putting a spotlight on different forms of gender-based violence and violence against women and how they cut across all of these issues 
uh, but then more broadly bringing bringing issues of women's empowerment and women's human rights across a whole variety of agendas uh, where they had been absent. Uh, so, so I think that those years were 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 uh, you know, the Centre for Women's Global Leadership, along with a, a lot of other kind of key networks and groups that had worked with internationally, did play you know an important role in shaping um, agendas and in creating um, opportunities and spaces for um, many other women's organisations and groups to enter into. Uh, um, you know, formative, formative, formative debates. The ICC was another example. The International uh, Criminal Court process, which uh, came, um, you know, which, which a lot of the groups and organisations that have been involved in the longer global campaign for women's human rights also became involved in looking for uh, gender-sensitive uh, responses within the International Criminal Court uh, in the wake of of, of all these horrendous. Uh, conflicts and, and, and the exposés in terms of the use of sexual violence and conflict and so on in your former Yugoslavia and then later in Rwanda. So there was, there was um, uh, an awful lot of synergy, I suppose, and um, uh, an awful lot of new energy and new momentum around integrating um, very, in, in, very comprehensively, taking seriously what it meant to really, um, you know, insert notions of kind of profound gender equality and women's human rights into into a whole range of, of um, you know, agendas that were emerging throughout that time. Well, you've already taken us into some of the, the really central themes of the book. We get this wonderful sense of the 1990s as this very lively, dynamic historical moment uh, with sort of one conference after another and people organizing really globally. Um, you, you, you talk, you use the term glow, uh, excuse me, you use the term cosmopolitan feminism. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little because it seems to tie in a little bit with this, this effort of, of coalition building uh, of the global, the global yeah. scope of this movement. Yeah. What's cosmopolitan feminism? Well, you know, I, this, this book grows out of two two main, I suppose, influences. One is the, the, the practical work that I was engaged in throughout the 1990s um, in, in terms of, of, of advancing women's rights as human rights. And also my, my doctoral research in feminist theory, which was really trying to um, you know, answer uh, some of the very well-grounded critiques of feminism as a project uh, in terms of its failures to deal with the kind of the diversity um, of 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 women, and also the uh, you know the the, the 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 huge the growing influence from the 1990s onward of the kind of postmodern epistemological critique, um, really challenging the, uh, the 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 grand narratives of you know, of human rights of you know equality and freedom and so on, uh, and as as the as the possible basis uh, for a transformative. Um, you know, movements that, that, that appeared to require commonality of experience and uh, commonality of identity among women. So it was very clear to me that, that this, what I was seeing in terms of movements for human rights did not actually require uh, this commonality of experience and identity. In fact, it, it, it worked with uh, the diversity and the difference and not just, you know, um, necessarily uh, uh, i mean obviously there's the, 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 the you know, there is a great deal of celebration and respect across difference but also difference and difference in terms of priorities and difference in terms of experience also 
uh, comes uh, with that comes um, conflict and tension. So I was, you know, very much conscious that uh, from my perspective, what I was seeing with the women's rights and human rights movement was a particular way of addressing and dealing with uh, all of these differences and tensions and conflicts, as well as the, if you like, the more positive synergies that go with uh, people working across uh, different perspectives and different locations. Um, and that I wanted a way to theorize uh, how you could work with or how what I saw um, in practice was women's groups, organizations, working with and around uh, all of the differences in, in their positive form and in their kind of more challenging and um, you know, perhaps conflictual forms, uh, and how that was a combination that was achieved by reference to this overarching framework of women's rights as human rights. So that it allowed for uh, quite a lot of diversity, difference of opinion, difference of prioritization in terms of issues and so on. Uh, but it still uh, also facilitated a kind of solidarity uh, towards transforming um, you know, oppressive uh, structural forces that may take different forms and be experienced differently by different women. Uh, but nonetheless, there was a certain commonality. It's what uh, Shonda Mahanti, I think, borrowing from Dorothy Smith, calls common differences. That there are, uh, you know, there are um, you know, forces and structures that we may call patriarchal or capitalist or racist, and that women... Uh, different women experiencing them the, 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 uh, differently and they experience them through a lens of cumulative disadvantage or cumulative advantage depending on you know, where they are located within the global economy and within various kinds of power structures. But there is nonetheless, it's nonetheless possible to identify a common moment uh, on which solidarity can be built. And I suppose what I was interested in was capturing and thematizing and theorizing what those common moments were and how the uh, assertion or the insistence that there are global norms and that women are entitled to claim human rights uh, can, can, can be a bridge across these differences in a way that uh, amplifies the common purpose. Now, this is, this is, this is w without making any claims of sameness or commonness of experience. So cosmopolitan, the, you know, I, I, I use the, the, the phrase cosmopolitan feminism to capture this notion of uh, the centrality of the um, claim that women's rights are human rights, which is, which is a, a socially constructed notion. It is, it's not, it doesn't, you can't, you'll never win, win the argument or the debate about the foundations of human rights. It is, it is by convention. We agree that there are human rights. And that's the point of departure in political projects. And, but, but there is no sort of single way of, of um, a priori or preemptively defining what the content of those rights are. The content of those rights can only really be defined in context uh, by the claimants of those rights uh, through transformative political projects and struggles. Uh, but that's very different from... Uh, it's not the same thing as suggesting a kind of a, relative, a, 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 a radical relativism because those differences are worked out in, always in the context of, of um, asserting that there are universal human rights to be claimed. It, uh, yeah. 
I wonder if you could um, give us a, an example, either from the book or from your own, exam, uh, own experience, of how this kind of um, you know, tension works between, on the one hand, different experiences, depending on positioning, as you say, in the global economy and in many other ways, um, and, and at the same time, a common language. How does that play itself out in the, in the women's human rights rights movement? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's um, you know, there are tremendous pluses and minus, uh, pluses and minuses around the way in which the issue of violence against women uh, has really surfaced as, as, as a very unifying issue. There are also problems with that. But I think that the, I think that the, the way in which the issue of violence against women plays out is, is, is an, a very good illustration of how that diversity um, and commonality works, and how uh, how the, the the kind of the claim of um, the global claim, or the or, or, or the claim of the right to be free from violence, uh, allows uh, very different women from very different perspectives uh, to to specify the content of that claim um, that in ways that are context specific. So, as I said earlier on. Uh, in the you know, in the kind of northern so-called developed countries, the focus was on uh, refuge provision and still is and service provision for women who experience domestic abuse, and that still continues to be quite a struggle. You know, particularly in the in the kind of uh, current economic recession, borderline depression, and the you know the reduction of. Um, um, your public expenditure and so on in providing supports and services and in vindicating the right to be free from violence in the home. Uh, so we see that, that that has been a major issue, continues to be a, um, a major issue. Uh, but you also then have uh, you know, violence against women taking other kinds of forms. And so the issue of honour killing or the issue of, um, or issues around you know, acid burning or dispossession, or dowry-related violence, that these would be very context-specific uh, issues that women's groups on the ground would bring to light and would challenge using uh, a human rights framework to make that challenge, uh, but, the, but the content being um, you know, articulated in a way that is uh, aware of and sensitive to the cultural and the context specificities uh, in which the claim is being made, so that there's no, if you like, one size fits all. I mean, one of the one of the, uh, if you like, flashpoint issues that uh, you know, I think it's very much been resolved more or less within uh, international women's movements. But one of the kind of uh, sources of conflict had been the issue of female genital cutting, where in the earlier part of the UN decade uh, for women. Uh, Western-based uh, women's advocates and organizations felt particularly strongly about uh, female genital cutting and female genital mutilation. And this created quite a bit of tension between women's organizations and groups from uh, the, the global north and those from the global south who found themselves in a position of, of being defensive uh, about the practice. Because there was a, there was, this is now I'm talking about the early part of the UN decade for women, where there was a, a feeling that this was a, a, a mode of, um, you know, neo-imperialism. This was, uh, you, know, you know, part of what Gayatri Spivak would say, a kind of a syndrome of 
um, you know, saving brown women from brown men or white women saving brown women from brown men and very much um, fraught with uh, complicated neo-imperialist and post-colonial power relations and uh, a failure to understand that really if you're going to have a kind of a non-oppressive, transformative women's human rights movement, the way in which issues are challenged Uh, who challenges, who speaks for, who articulates the claim has to come from within the contexts uh, where the rights are being violated. Now, things are that since then, uh, indigenous movements in places where female genital uh, cutting mutilation are practiced have have developed and there's very little equivocation uh, about, uh, about the practice uh, but that it is a, a violation of women's bodily integrity and girls' bodily integrity and rights and so on. But at that time, you uh, you had a very direct clash. And I think that when I talk about cosmopolitan feminism, I'm talking about a, a, a feminism that embraces women's rights as human rights, but in a way that cannot be separated from an understanding of how one does human rights, of how, how you do human rights and what kind of uh, political practices are engaged in the pursuit of those human rights. So uh, external imposition, top-down diktats, um, uh, cultural insensitivity, uh, and that goes across in in all directions, I mean, cultural sensitivity in all directions, uh, does not give you uh, a non-oppressive and an an emancipatory form of human rights. It gives you a problematic uh, imposition of of, of human rights. So I suppose one of the messages of the book is, is that the way we do human rights, the human rights practice and, and the politics um, of, our, of our practice around human rights is as important as uh, the naming of the issues and the content. Uh, so it's, it's to get away from that tendency of naming all the things that are uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, you know of, of naming um, a priori what the human rights issues are. They can only actually be named and prioritized in context if, if what we care about is, is, is non-oppressive human rights practice. And of course, it sounds like almost a contradiction in terms. How would you come up with an oppressive human rights practice? But I think the example you just gave helps us out with that, the notion of, um, of in a sense, Western outsiders you know, coming in with a very strong critique could, could obviously feel very oppressive um, for people living within communities where they're understanding practices, you know, a female genital sure, cutting, for sure. example, with, within, a larger, within a larger context um, and within, within very textured relationships. Um, you, know, you said something very interesting earlier on about, about human rights, in a sense, existing because being, being a... a Something socially constructed, sure. something that we have we have come up with, um, and and I love your your assertion that we we will never come up with an answer to the question of the origins sure. of human rights, but they they exist because we assert yeah. them, and this business of of making claims uh, from within communities and within societies and cultures, I think is such an interesting and important one, and of course one of the the very important insights uh, that came from women making claims has to do with the so-called public-private split, Mm -hmm. which has been so important in the history 
um, of human rights, but also of liberalism. And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about that public-private divide and how that's played itself out in the history of women's human rights. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the um, big challenges when in the early 90s, uh, women's groups began to ask, well, why, you know, given that violence against women and domestic violence in particular, and you know, violence in, in the home is such a huge um, issue for so many women worldwide and such a serious issue and a life-threatening issue, why is it that it's not seen as a human rights issue? And this required then unpicking some of the kind of core concepts and the kind of the logic, the discursive logic of human rights, um, you know, and, and how it is, how it has been, how human rights have been institutionalized and practiced. And of course, the liberal public-private divide is very much at the core of, of, you know, how human rights have been institutionalized under the influence of, you know, the hegemonic uh, Western influences in particular. So if you take the Universal Declaration of Human Rights per se, uh, it covers the whole gambit of human rights. It doesn't necessarily, um, you know, talk about the public sphere. It doesn't necessarily single out states as violators of human rights. But yet, reflecting the hegemony and the dominance of liberal Western states, human rights came to be institutionalized as if violations by state actors in the public sphere were the most important thing about what human rights are about. In other words, the, the, the fear of the arbitrary use of state power came to define what human rights are about. So if we think about Amnesty International, it's very much about you know, arbitrary detention, pris prisoners of conscience, people denied freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of association. All of these associational civil rights that are hugely important, uh, particularly in terms of kind of collective organization, in terms of human freedom in this public sphere sense. But somehow they came to define the whole of what human rights were about and leave intact the private sphere and the cultural sphere as, if you like, a privatized sphere within human rights, where it became, where, where, where it was um, much more, more difficult to name uh, things that are happening in the private sphere as violations of human rights, because they've come to be understood from the, you know, the 19, from the Universal Declaration in 1948 through the kind of Cold War period as violations by state actors of particular kinds of civil and, and, and political rights. So when you had a situation where women's organizations wanted violence against women and domestic violence to be understood as a human rights issue, th this huge barrier had to be overcome, which is that anything that happens in the private sphere can't be understood as a human rights violation because human rights violations have come to be understood as things that states do to um, citizens um, in this public sphere sense of the word, right? So, so that meant immediately unpicking the way in which the public-private divide played out in human rights discourse and in the, the understanding of what human rights violations were. Also, because human rights is 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 an international framework, it's mapped on to um, um, international relations, which are structured fundamentally around you know this idea of. Um, you know, autonomous sovereign states uh, you know, that are territorial and um, self-determining and therefore any kind of mode of international law uh, has, you know, always has this kind of constraint 
that uh, it consists only of things that states agree to. So the human rights system is, by definition, a voluntary arrangement. And the, you know, the fundamental, if you like, legal unit is the state. But of course, feminists have always critiqued this notion of the homogeneous autonomous state actor. It's, it's, and, 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 you know, critics of kind of mainstream international relations crit- critique, this is fundamental to the critique to, to, to critical international relations. So you have, um, you, you end up with a very state-centric notion of what human rights are about. And therefore, if, if, it's, if it is a state that signs up to human rights, then it is a state, it, it is a state's action that, the actions that become the focus of human rights. And this had to be problematized by feminists in order to see that actions by non-state actors are also violations of human rights, just because they're, they're, they're perpetrated by, by uh, in this case, you know, a family member, a spouse, a, a private actor, right? So, so part of what had to happen was to put pressure on this, uh, to, 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 to really expand the focus from looking at you know, bad things that states do to things that states fail to do to um, protect uh, people from human rights abuses by, by third parties. So you get this idea of, of yes, states must um, uh, protect human rights, they must sign up to agree, but they must you know, also promote human rights by uh, ensuring that third parties, not only states, don't violate human rights. And they must fulfill their commitments, which is really about the resource issue, which is the other part of the public-private divide. So you have the public-private divide, which, which is the classic liberal public-private divide, which has operated within the human rights paradigm uh, in similar ways as it has done at, 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 if you like, sub-state level to conceal abuses that happen in the private sphere. So we had kind of parallel logic in terms of defining, for example, violence against women as a crime uh, yeah, which, which was what a, a lot of the kind of women's movements in the in the in the Europe, North America have worked on in the last number of decades in, from the from second wave feminism. So you have a similar sort of um, a parallel problematic at the international level of making visible what happens in private spheres by private actors as violations of human rights in the first instance. And huge progress has been made in naming what private actors do as as violations of human rights. The other aspect of the public-private is this wider battle uh, with the rise of neoliberal logic, which is really about shrinking the role of the state um, in in, uh, safeguarding the welfare and the well-being of the people uh, in in its jurisdiction. So the steady pressure to shrink the state, deregulate, uh, minimize public expenditure and so on is 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 you know uh, is a huge obstacle to advancing social and economic rights because the human rights system is a state centered system in the sense that it basically puts the onus on states to protect promote and fulfill human rights but if at the same time you have huge pressures to minimize and constrain and curtail state action by definition, you're minimizing uh, the, 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 the um, potential for states to be more proactively involved in safeguarding the range of social and economic rights that affect women hugely. So we see with this long trajectory towards you know, deregulation, privatization and so on, uh, the well-documented shift in the burden of care 
back to women, um, uh, you know, the privatization of the burden of care, uh, which which falls on women. So whether that's care for for our children, for uh, you know, dependents, people with disabilities, elderly, and so on, in in most societies all around the world, women continue to carry the disproportionate burden of care for those in need, for those who are most vulnerable in society. And when you have this drive towards privatization, essentially it's a systematic drive of, of you know, increasing that burden, uh, privatizing that burden onto women and increasing that burden on, on women as states pull out and play um, um, you know, an ever decreasing role and take ever uh, less responsibility for ensuring uh, these very, very basic needs, uh, whether it's you know ch- children's special needs and 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 special learning needs, or care for people with your know, disabilities, or and so on and so forth. That when you have a trend towards less state involvement as part of a wider trend towards um, uh, the kind of the the privatization, deregulation, and the kind of you know, reducing the influence of the state, you, f- you fundamentally, um, um, you know, are at odds with the promise of human rights across the social and the economic um, side of the spectrum of human rights. And the radical or the transformative potential of human rights lies in, uh, you know, a kind of a strong commitment to the indivisibility of human rights and to the interrelation of all human rights, that it's not really um, possible to separate out some rights and say these are the most important rights and the, less, and, and the rest are less important, as has happened, as, as was the case uh, throughout the kind of second half of the 20th century, where civil and political rights in a narrow sense were accepted as the, as the most important human rights and everything else was optional and could follow. But this is huge gender dimensions because this, the social and the economic, the, you know, the, 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 the right to um, you know, clean water, accommodation, basic primary health, education, all of these rights are absolutely um, in, you know, central to uh, the lives of, of, of most women in most parts of the world. And where you have less and less support for those from states, you have a much greater burden um, of care uh, on women and, uh, uh, you know, an exacerbation of, you know, inequalities in the distribution of the resources and the goods and the benefits uh, in any given society. So those are the two aspects of the public-private divide and how they play out there's there's the concealing of abuses that happen in the private sphere you get the privatization of other kinds of 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 cultural practices that are harmful to women as well as the concealment of abuses you know into the domestic abuse and domestic violence but you also have a public private configuration that has really defined the last 30 years which is about the, the, the attack on the, the, the reduction of the state and the minimization of the state and privatization in general and privatization of healthcare and privatization of social care and all of these things which affect women in particular in very profound ways and really um, um, erode and impede the prospects for their enjoyment uh, of you know, the full range of human rights. 
Right, and as you note, of course, the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has plenty to say about about healthy living conditions yep. and um, and workplace conditions that are not overly dangerous yes. or burdensome. And these are exactly the sorts of things sure. you're talking about. But but of course, as you note, they're they don't sort of fall into that political rights category mm-hmm. of of the of the political prisoner. And um, it's it's useful to sort of go back and remember that that this was part of the original Absolutely. human rights yeah. package, yeah. right? This is this is not something new we're inventing, but it, of course it it does seem to take it on a different life. And you talk about this in your book, in um in the post Cold War era of of neoliberalism and globalization and 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 development policies as well, international development politics, which do stretch back into the era of the Cold War and often became entangled with yeah. the Cold War. Um, I wonder if you'd like to to tell us a little bit about about some of these you know, what some people might call first world third world issues the global north the global south um how does this all tie into issues that we now think about with globalization yeah well i think you know one of the challenges there is a you know there's a very long standing um chasm between the sort of the in terms of the international ngo communities and advocacy communities that are focused around development and uh, sort of economic and social justice issues in a global frame, and those who have advocated around human rights. There's, there's this, uh, Philip Alston talks about ships passing in the night. Uh, you know, traditionally, you have development advocates are very program, programmatically oriented. They're very interested in, in, in you know, the deployment of resources on the ground and making an immediate difference to people's day-to-day lives. And they perceive human rights advocates often as kind of up in the air, preoccupied with kind of legal norms uh, and battles for legal reform that even if they are achieved, actually will make no difference to the, in the day-to-day lives of your, your people who most need uh, transformation. And, you know, I think that... that you know, this is this is this continues to be, um, you know, a huge a huge issue and a huge challenge of making the links between the the struggle uh, to make real, you know, human rights commitments and human rights norms and human rights principles, uh, and to actually address kind of you know, the gross um, discrepancies uh, in terms of access to. The, the 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 basics for survival and for a kind of a, um, a you know a reasonable quality of life, which is denied the vast majority of you know people on the planet. Uh, you know it, it, it is you know, the, the, you know the majority, the world's majority, do not um, experience um, things like clean water and you know, education and decent livelihoods and and are very susceptible to exploitation. Um, in all kinds of forms, so so the the you know the struggle to the struggle to link the two is is you know is is ongoing and is not easy. But I think that um, Amartya Sen work, you know, on human development, you know, tries to foreground the importance of you know political engagement in achieving uh, economic justice and social justice. Uh, that and, and this again is 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 a way. So the capabilities approach and the human development paradigm is an example of um, um, the influence of human rights thinking migrating into development thinking. Uh, so the idea of putting the human person and their empowerment 
uh, including, you know, very, very specifically from our Amartya Sen point of view, including uh, their rights claiming aspects of, 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 of their empowerment at the centre of achieving the social and the economic um, um, social and, and um, economic justice. So this again is about indivisibility of fusing the you know the the, the, the political rights, which are the, the freedom of expression, the freedom of association, um, and we see it in the moment with the Arab Spring and so on that you know, people are you know very conscious of uh, these sort of um, you know civil and political rights and their mobilization and having access to them and being able to exercise them as a key part to bringing about transformation. But the challenge is to link the exercise of those kinds of rights to also bringing about very kind of concrete shifts in allocations of resources and power and in in ways that really benefit uh, the most vulnerable and the most disenfranchised in a society which no society has really achieved completely as yet. So so there is a long history of it, even at the time when the uh, CEDAW, which was the, the Women's Convention, you know, in the first, in the first uh, you know, post the kind of Universal Declaration of Human Rights, throughout the 50s, 60s, and all the way into the 70s, you know, a real, um, a very kind of stalwart team of uh, women worked within the UN system to bring about, you know, important, uh, the, the adoption of important global norms around advancing women's equality and women's rights. And at the same time, you then had, a, you know, throughout this, the, the, this, the 70, 75 to 85, you then had the rise of the more, if you like, development-oriented women's networks and organizations. And at that time, they were ships passing in the night. They didn't really see the relevance, uh, the, 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 the burgeoning, growing uh, movement of, of, of women's organizations and groups that arose through the UN uh, decade for women was very much focused on programmatic issues, on the, on the inclusion of women in development, on gender and development um, paradigms, which understood that you needed to tackle unequal gender power relations um, in order to tackle, uh, you know, to, to really include women in development. So things like, for example, disparities in, in the ownership of land and inheritance and you know, the microcredit movement and all of that. So women's organizations that were coming up through the UN Decade on Women did not see at that point the relevance of CEDAW. So it was this idea of, well, this is just a very legalistic um, you know, um, strategy that's really focused on you know, making elite women equal to elite men. But what happened in the 1990s, you began to see more um, interrelation and more sort of co- cooperation between those two strands. And that led to CEDAW experiencing um, quite a transformation and a boost. It had very much been the poor uh, cousin of the human rights system with very few resources. It met infrequently. Uh, it didn't have the same, um, you know, uh, tools at its disposal to to put pressure on states and so on. But af- with the Global Campaign for Women's Human Rights, you then saw CEDAW being really strengthened. And CEDAW is a very interesting convention among conventions, among the, 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 the UN Human Rights Conventions, because it, it, it very much gives equal billing to the political, the civil, the social, the economic and the cultural rights and always has done. So the, 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 the global campaign for women's human rights was very instrumental in backing a move to strengthen and increase you know, the number of meetings, the, the, the resources, the powers of CEDAW in particular, 
the adoption of, of the individual complaints procedure, the group complaints procedure, an inquiry procedure. All of these things are tools and mechanisms that make CEDAW a stronger treaty. And it's a treaty that tries to integrate um, um, more so than any other treaty. The economic, I mean, CERD, which is the Convention on the Elimination of uh, Racial Discrimination, is similar. But CEDAW is, 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 is probably more comprehensive in its attempts to integrate across the social, economic and cultural. But one of the main big challenges in this whole um, world of, of, of development and global justice economically is the fact that the human rights system, it goes back to the fact that the human rights system is state-centric and it, it very much puts the burden, uh, the onus or the responsibility for achieving rights on states. And one of the criticisms that is often made is that in a very unequal world where states are very um, on, 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 you know, unequal vis-a-vis each other, putting a burden on developing world states or very poor states to achieve certain rights is, 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 is unfair and simply doesn't acknowledge the discrepancy in, 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 in means and resources and so on. And so you know, probably what is, might be surprising to some is that it's a lot of third world states that have resisted strengthening the social and economic rights because of the obligation that puts and the strain that puts on, on the necessity of the state in basically providing the basics in terms of health, welfare, education and so on. And this brings us then to the whole debate around the right to development. Uh, so what is the right to development? That was, a, again, a, 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 you know, a movement that came out of the the new international economic order movement of the 1970s that really wanted to challenge global capitalism as the main um, engine of uh, economic um, growth and prosperity and so on. And what this does is it, it really begs the question about, you know, the, 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 you know, if the human rights system is state-centric, what, who, who is responsible then? What is the responsibility of, of, of transnational actors or intergovernmental actors to... Uh, nations that are struggling to develop. So is there an obligation? Is there something called the international community that has an obligation to, uh, uh, to, to, to observe and to encourage and to deliver on human rights uh, beyond their own state? And legally, there is no basis for that. But politically, that argument is often made. So when you have, um, for example, at Durban, um, you, you, you often get a kind of a call from groups of um, um, formerly colonized states, for example, looking for reparation uh, for the damage done through the period of colonization or um, looking for reparation in terms of for slavery or for past um, egregious um, violations of human rights of that type, uh, to, to recognize the way in which the historical conditions have fundamentally impaired and put certain countries at at a, at a disadvantage. But one of the huge limitations of the international human rights system is that it still essentially rests on um, state obligation. And there isn't, um, there isn't um, the, it doesn't have the capacity at this stage of, of naming something called the international community, uh, which has an obligation. So in other words, we have bilateral aid, we have you know, development aid, but it's very much in the model of charity and and, um, you know, kind of a, an optional giving of resources from the wealthy countries to the poorer countries. It's not on a rights based footing because 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 there isn't an entity above the state that can be obligated 
to assist countries in their development through, you know, within in, in, in that human rights sense at present. So that's been a big debate as well that is ongoing. Yeah. You know, when you, um, you know, talk about sort of international mechanisms, one of the places where there does seem to have been some movement, and like you say, dating back from the 1990s, is in the the business of sexual violence as a weapon of war. And you mm. spoke very briefly earlier on about, about Rwanda and Yugoslavia mm. and, um, and the International Criminal Court becoming a place where indeed perpetrators can be, can be tried. Um, and you, and you devote some space in your book to this business of, of conflict and post conflict, uh, where we mean armed yeah. conflict, um, either state conflict or civil conflict. Uh, you know, wars um and that's also been just such a a very important area of of growth of recognizing um that that sexual violence against uh women or children or or men in some cases as well during war is is not just business as usual um but this is a crime and and there has been movement um in the international court system i wonder if you can Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there has been, you know, the, the, the International Criminal Court statute for the first time defined a whole raft of um, gender-based violations, you know, rape and sexual slavery and forced pregnancy and uh, trafficking as war crimes and crimes against humanity. Up until then, they had been understood as crimes against honour or, and they weren't named, they weren't singled out. And of course, crimes against honor suggest that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're problematic because they impair the value of a woman within a community or her value vis-a-vis you know, um, um, men rather than, than in, in, in and of themselves being violations. So that was you know, hugely important in terms of, of, of norm setting. Now, there there. there you know, there are, have been, you know, the, the, there are reservations and there are concerns about how much can be achieved through, uh, you know, the, but, but if you like, by a kind of a maybe too great a focus on uh, the prosecution of wartime mm-hmm. sexual violence from the perspective of um, delivering to women what it is women need who have lived through and um, experienced uh, wartime sexual violence, uh, whether on mm-hmm. kind of you know individual level or as part of kind of a, a kind of a systematic and a, and 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 the massive use of, of 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 sexual violence, and I think there's no doubt that impunity for sexual violence and the recognition of sexual violence as war crime and crime against humanity, all you know are hugely important, but there is a danger uh, that that. You know, the achievement of, 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 of this recognition and the prosecution of, of a handful of cases might be perceived as being the solution. And there, there is also, you know, there's also evidence to suggest that there's not a whole lot of case examples where sexual violence has been prosecuted. And in the cases that there have been, it, 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 is, it is, you know, in the case of Rwanda, it's, it's rape as an aspect of genocide, which is, which is, which is which is fine and important, but again, not in and of itself as a crime against humanity or as a war crime. And um, you know, where there's, you know, for example, in the situation of Bosnia Herzegovina, 
you know, there is um, research that I'm aware of that's ongoing at the moment with, with women who are survivors of wartime sexual violence. There is a lot of disquiet and, I suppose, disillusionment among women uh, about, uh, you know, w- how their stories are being used, how they're being used, how their lives are being used. And, you know, 10, 15 years on, they, you know, they, they don't have the basics in terms of, uh, you know, basic kind of counselling and treatment for trauma or basic access to healthcare or access to training and employment and so on. So th- there are there are serious concerns. And then, and then uh, you know, the likes of Julie Mertis has written about uh, you know, whether or not the logic of the adversarial, uh, you know, prosecution of wartime sexual violence can ever really deliver justice for women in the sense that women need justice. And uh, mm-hmm. so, so there are questions about that, which is not to say that it hasn't been hugely important. <clears throat> but also we see, we see, it hasn't usually been important to get that recognition, but there are questions about, um, um, notwithstanding all of the kind of excellent provisions that are in place in terms of gender sensitivity and, uh, you, um, you, know, not, you know, not taking into account women's past histories and so on and so forth. There are important, but there, ha- there haven't actually been, you know, a whole lot of examples of, of the use of these provisions. Um, and so far, and there is research ongoing, and we, we, we won't know for another while yet, but we should begin to know in the next couple of years uh, really what the, what the consensus seems to be about how effective um, these mechanisms are uh, on behalf of women. There's also then the tendency to, um, you know, think that maybe uh, non more restorative justice mechanisms may work better for women. But the research also indicates that this is not necessarily the case. You know, uh, truth and reconciliation um, processes, truth commissions and so on, uh, or like the Gachacha courts in Rwanda, which are kind of community based using uh, customary um, court type processes. Uh, in order, because the scale of the of the violations, that the numbers of violations are so enormous, that it's simply not possible to process them uh, in the very fragile and underdeveloped uh, justice systems that are put in place post conflict. There has been a tendency or a move towards using these restorative or these popular modes of justice, and the research indicates there that women are not faring very well. The same kinds of gender biases and uh, you know, patriarchal biases and gender blindness prevails in these scenarios as well, leaving women uh, very much uh, disempowered as well. So there's a lot of very interesting work emerging there. Also, in the last number of years, very recently, since 2008, you do have a kind of a new spate of UN Security Council resolutions uh, that are following up on UN Security Council Resolution 1325 in 2000, which was all about you know, the comprehensive empowerment and inclusion of, 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 of women in all aspects of, of peace negotiation and peace building and post-conflict transformation. And that hasn't really delivered. Uh, and there are really, uh, you know, important kind of questions to be raised and asked about that. But more recently, we've seen um, a shift to trying to strengthen that implementation with a, f- a very great focus on wartime sexual violence again. And in a way that's in danger of eclipsing the, I would say, probably the most radical element of 1325, which was the obligation um, uh, to ensure women's full and equal participation. Uh, a recognition that unless women have, are at the table, are decision makers, uh, that, 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 that their vulnerability 
uh, in times of war, conflict and, and, and upheaval to, um, you know, sexual violence, uh, you know, will not be minimized until there's a shift, a very real shift in uh, power sharing and decision making um, for women. It brings us back to your um, your older theme, in a sense, of uh, of how you do human rights being possibly more important than what what themes in particular you're going yeah. after um, or what crimes you're naming, but this business about how one does human rights and who's participating in the process yeah. um, as being um, really, really the key element to to empowering um, people uh, within within this language of human rights, like you say, rather than a top-down sure. model. Um, you, you have one, this is all so interesting, and there's one last thing that you sort of close your book on that I think is also enormously important, and I want to be able to spend just a couple of minutes on that. We talked earlier quite a lot about CEDA, the Convention um, on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, and among other things that's happened with the history of CEDAW is, of course, a kind of a, a run-in with questions of, of what you call multiple fundamentalisms mm-hmm. and, and how we think about mm-hmm. the relationship between women's human rights and cultural rights. Uh, we think, of course, a lot about Islamic fundamentalism, but as you note in your book, and many of us are also quite aware, um, Christian fundamentalism can be a threat to women's yeah. human rights. And because this is so much a theme uh, in, t- in, in the news today, I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that and where you think we stand. Yeah, I mean, I have um, done some work in recent years around this whole dilemma, I suppose, moving back from a kind of a, a UN-oriented uh, space, living back in Ireland over the last um, number of years, uh, becoming very aware in the European context of um, you know, the moral panic that has arisen around Islam in the West and the way in which uh, attention has homed in on um, you know, Muslim women as the kind of you know, ultimate um, you know, kind of, uh, um, symbol of uh, oppression and disempowerment through the eyes of, of, of the West, it, it, you know, it got me thinking a lot more closely about the way in which cultural, in this case, in particular, religious difference uh, is, is, is mobilized politically. And in a way, I think, um, you know, I, I very much agree with recent work by Judith Butler and Joan Scott. And interestingly, across the political spectrum, I mean, you have Judith Butler and Joan Scott on one side and then across the spectrum to uh, the likes of Jean Beth Elstein uh, in terms of conservative kind of communitarianism. What what we're seeing is is is, is the one thing that people can agree on is is that the, the most important issue is the quality of the democracy and the um, safeguarding against authoritarianism. There's been a conflation, um, I think, in this kind of, uh, you know, within the kind of divide between the more liberal uh, focus on universal claims, the kind of the, the mediating space within that, which is kind of the, the, the you know, a dialogical approach to um, retaining a commitment to kind of universal norms, and then the multiculturalist approach, which 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 uh, seems to demand uh, you know a more of a kind of a relativist pluralism, and of course, where do you, as you said at the start, where do you locate, where do you draw the line uh, and uh, defend women's human rights within that? 
you know, it, it's, it's become very clear to me as I kind of look at this closely that people are asking the wrong question uh, in terms of um, it's not about religion. It's not about, um, you know, uh, this, you know the, the, the idea of the secular state or not the secular state, but it is about uh, the regulation, the accountability of religious authority. And it is about authoritarianism. And I think uh, Norani Othman, I think, writes about this really very eloquently in, 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 in the situation of Malaysia, that when you have religious fundamentalisms, and, I, and you're, you're right, there's an absolute kind of preoccupation uh, with Islam as the source of religious fundamentalism, which really has to be challenged and refuted, uh, which, which is a tendency to characterize Western democratic nations as, as, as basically the kind of quintessential, um, you know, examples, exemplars of what the kind of secular state is, 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 is about. And then to equate, um, you know, Islam and uh, the Muslim religion with uh, the opposite of that. And I think that's very problematic because, of course, women are completely caught in the, uh, in the, in, 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 in the logic of that as uh, Muslim women symbolizing <clears throat> the kind of the eternally oppressed uh, and disenfranchised woman, which is very problematic, uh, and also falsely uh, really suggesting that, that uh, you know, Western developed states have the monopoly on uh, the kind of the, you know, this, this, this particular, um, you know, well-oiled kind of secular state. Because if you look at the, re- at the research in terms of sociology of religion, you, you know, there's very, very few states that are secular in that sense, religious ethos, religious values, religious actors permeate most societies in one form or another. I mean, I'm very, I'm very aware of that in the situation of Ireland, uh, where, 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 you know, where kind of conservative Catholic ethos still is hugely influential in the delivery of healthcare and the delivery of education. And yet Ireland would be perceived as a Western modern secular society, you know, of late in the last in the last decade. And it actually just isn't true. So I'm just interested in really problematizing that supposed dichotomy between uh, kind of the secular West and the kind of um, uh, irrational, you know, um, you know, where Islam is an important religion there's an assumption that we're dealing with a kind of fundamentalism automatically, but where various strains of Christianity are present, that's not seen as, as, as a problem. So I think it's, it's probably um, makes much more sense from a human rights perspective to look, look at the exercise of religious authority in whatever form it takes as any form of arbitrary authority and, and look at how that is impinging on various um, you know, human rights and you know, how it impinges on, on, on you know, women's human rights as defined by women in, in, their, in, in, in their context. So I suppose it's the wrong question. Norani Othman, you know, talks about the, you know, the, is the um, Islamization of Malaysia. And she said, this is not about, this was not about a, the, 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 the steady is, um, Islamization of Malaysia didn't occur because you know, people were more and more devout and wanted a more and more um, um, Islamic state. It came about, from her analysis, because conditions of fear, intimidation, and um, you know, authoritarianism took root, so that people became afraid not to allow the um, um, Islamification take place. So in other words, it was a question of 
of, of the weakness of democracy and a failure of democracy rather than a rise in religious fervor. And women living under Muslim laws, the, 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 you know, the network that has been operating since the 1980s, you know, is, has, has done lots of documentation that are around this. I mean, their position always is that when you see you know, religious fundamentalist movements or autocratic um, religious movements, it, they are political they are movements of they are authoritarian political movements that are using religion to gain uh, certain ends. Uh, they're not actually religious movements in the sense of 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 um, um, you know devout people rising up and wanting a more um, devout um, um, a state that reflects this you know, particular religious perspective. So yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. On. So I was just gonna. You know, so, so, so I suppose I think it's hugely problematic. Uh, the way in which the, you know, there are very big problems with the way in which um, Islam and Muslim women are figured in these debates through the Western um, lens, and I think that that uh, the, the the you know if we if we ask questions about authoritarianism and empowerment and democracy rather than religious identity, uh, I think we're you know we're we're more on the mark in terms of protecting uh, women's human rights and asking what are the conditions where women can effectively claim their human rights and seek to protect their human rights and others can work in solidarity with them as they do that. Uh, and it is really about the conditions for, you know, interestingly enough, we come back to some of the, 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 the civil and political rights in terms of freedom of association, freedom of expression, so that the clash we get, I mean, I'm not, you know, it's, I'm more familiar with the clashes that's unfolding within Europe, but the focus on women's headscarves is... is 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 bizarre from a human rights perspective with you know with 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 the french government um prohibiting and fining women for wearing burqas and so on it's 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 so obviously um a violation of women's human rights to prohibit the wearing of of um muslim headdress or to compel the wearing of any kind of headdress in the name of religion they are equally violations of women's kind of self-determination and moral autonomy and freedom of expression and and all all sorts of things so uh you know you can't but 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 the sort of the one size fits all top-down idea that this symbolizes women's oppression therefore we are going to save women from themselves we're going to save you know again Gayatri Spivak's phrase brown women from brown men is hugely problematic and obviously completely um, antithetical to any kind of um, emancipatory notion of women's human rights. It's a wonderful uh, way to sort of reframe the question, right? To sort of um, shift the attention from from religion, from fundamentalism, and particularly from particular religion to to the civic sphere and to, uh, like you say, um, authoritarianism rather than um, the democratic process. Uh, this book covers so much territory. Uh, I enjoyed reading it immensely, and I've um, I've had my students read it. They've gotten enormous amounts from it. We've we've covered a lot of ground in today's talk, and I want to just um, end by asking you a kind of a traditional question on the New Books Network, which is what you're doing now. Well, um, I have a couple of projects, but I suppose the the one that I'm uh, heading into in depth at the moment is I'm I'm interested in. Security Council Resolution 1325. I'm interested mm-hmm. in the latest developments in terms of armed conflict and women in conflict-affected situations and transitions from conflict. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in you know, how the Security Council has been engaged with, uh, how the promulgation of um, Security Council resolutions, particularly around wartime sexual violence, 
um, are, are playing out uh, in in conflict affected situations. So the the research that I'm 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 going to be embarking on in the next couple of months is specifically looking at peace uh, support operations, which which are a growing and expanding a huge slice of what the UN does. And there is this obligation to comprehensively address gender equality and women's human rights in the context of peace support operations. And again, it is this interest that I have in, well, what does this look like in practice? Uh, How do these um, um, peace support operations, which really are a confluence of military and civilian and police and UN and diplomatic and local um, you know, um, inchoate kind of governance structures and emerging civil society structures. So they're, they're you know, and, they're, and these are spaces where efforts are being made to keep gender equality and women's human rights on the agenda. So I'm very interested in looking at this um, in, in, in detail, uh, maybe in the case of a couple of specific um, countries and across a few regions, but also looking at the Security Council resolution, it's uh, the Security Council as a site for the generation of resolutions, its uh, relationship with the Secretary General, how the UN as a space uh, interfaces then on the ground with um, uh, these, these, these conflict-affected situations and how women figure in that and what is the transformative potential uh, of, of the, you know, the various Security Council resolutions that have been passed you know, since the 2001 and most specifically these last three or four, because there's also a trend to foreground the protection of uh, civilians and to link that with the protections um, um, in terms of sexual violence. And I suppose the question I have is, how do we keep on the agenda the requirement that 1325 places uh, to ensure the comprehensive uh, inclusion of women, women's participation um, in decision-making and in the sharing of power, as well as the comprehensive inclusion of gender perspective in all aspects of these um, transitions from conflict. What a great project. Uh, look forward to reading that. It's so very timely, right? This is, this is stuff that, um, that, that we, we so badly need study of. Um, thanks so much for your time. This has been just fascinating work that you're involved in. It's so good to have had you on the program. Thank you very much, Lisa. Our guest today has been Niav Riley, author of Women's Human Rights, Polity Press 2009. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies. Thanks very much for joining us.